Welcome to Momentum, a podcast of Race Forward. Race Forward's mission is to catalyze movements to advance the vision of a multiracial democracy. My name is Farron McLurkin, and I am Senior Vice President of Strategic Partnerships at Race Forward. The history of reparations in this country is long and complex, reaching at least as far back as the abolition of slavery in 1865. There was a special field order number 15 during the Reconstruction era. You may have heard of it as the phrase 40 acres and a mule. This was a commitment to give land to formerly enslaved people as a form of restitution. The promise was the first systemic attempt to provide at least some form of reparations to newly freed people. Although a parcel of land in exchange for enslaving a whole people may not seem like a good deal, it was astonishingly radical for its time, especially because it entailed the federal government's large-scale confiscation of the property of plantation owners and the methodical redistribution to formerly enslaved black people. If you don't already know, you can guess what happened this policy was later reversed and Reconstruction was dismantled, leading to the reemergence of white supremacist power structures, including sharecropping, Jim Crow laws, voter suppression, and the renewed prominence of the Ku Klux Klan. Jim Crow was the new form of oppression if slavery was no longer on the table. But pushes for reparations continued over the entire next century, with political figures such as W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Roberson, Marcus Garvey, William Patterson, and Malcolm X all asserting the idea as a form of redress to black Americans. There were formal organizations created to advance reparations, and several important pieces of legislation and legal cases were brought forth in the late 1980s and 90s, including Pigford v. Glickman, 1999, a class action lawsuit against the United States Department of Agriculture, alleging that it had racially discriminated against African-American farmers in its allocation of farm loans and assistance from 1981 to 1996. The case was settled in 1999 and actually resulted in authorization of over $1 billion in payments and debt relief to black farmers, making it one of the largest ever civil rights settlements in U.S. history. Insufficient notice to claimants led to a follow-up settlement in 2010, which authorized an additional $1.2 billion to address remaining and new claims from those who missed the filing deadline from the original lawsuit. It was historic. There are other examples. In July 2020, the City Council of Asheville, North Carolina, voted unanimously to provide reparations to black residents and their descendants for the city's role in slavery, discrimination, and community divestment. And in 2020, California became the first state to adopt a law to study and develop proposals for potential reparations to descendants of enslaved people and those affected by slavery. Government has not been the only actor involved in reparations claims. In 2019, students at Georgetown University voted in favor of a measure to pay reparations to the descendants of enslaved people sold by the university in the 19th century. Today, we will be speaking with Edgar Villanueva, author of the best-selling book, Decolonizing Wealth, and founder and CEO of the Decolonizing Wealth Project and Liberated Capital. Decolonizing Wealth recently announced a commitment of $20 million over five years to boost campaigns for reparations across the country. Edgar Villanueva is an award-winning author, activist, and expert on issues of race, wealth, and philanthropy. 
Villanueva is the principal of Decolonizing Wealth Project and Liberated Capital and the author of best-selling book Decolonizing Wealth. He advises a range of organizations, including national and global philanthropies, Fortune 500 companies, and entertainment on social impact strategies to advance racial equity from within and through their investment strategies. Villanueva holds a BSPH and MHA from the Gillings Global School of Public Health at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is an enrolled member of the Lumbee tribe and resides in New York City. Edgar, thank you so much for agreeing to join the Momentum podcast. We're so excited to have you. We've known each other for a long time now, and I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about your personal background and what brought you to this work. Yeah, absolutely. It's an honor to be here with y'all today. So where do I I begin? My people are indigenous, Native American. I'm an enrolled member of the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina. I was born and raised there in that state. I come from poor people, people who have worked in the care industry. My mom was a domestic worker until pretty recently. And I grew up under the heavy influence of the church, Christianity. And I think I think all of that combined with sort of indigenous values, the church and its influence drove me towards a life to want to be involved in ministry. I actually went to seminary right out of high school, which is a surprise to a lot of people who don't know me or to people who know me, actually. <laughs> and, you know, I really just wanted to help people. And at that time, the church is really the only mechanism that I knew of. I didn't know about nonprofits and philanthropy or any of that stuff. So I I went off to Jackson, Mississippi and realized at the end of my time there that working in the church was not going to be the right space for me. And I ended up going back to North Carolina and going to school for public health. And so I think the sort of area of public health was really appealing to me because it was about uh, helping folks with information and resources to uh, be safe and to take care of themselves and to get vaccinated or whatever the campaign might have been. So I did that work for a number of years. And then I went back to graduate school and was really sort of happy in that space, feeling like I was doing the work of healing and, and helping communities. I got recruited to a foundation right out of graduate school. So I was 28 years old. I had no idea what a philanthropy was and just got recruited by this health foundation in North Carolina, the Kate B. Reynolds Charitable Trust. And I remember going to like interview for that role. I, I was like, I had no idea or understanding of like what this job was or really what this organization did. All I knew is they were telling me I would have basically a lot of influence and control over tens of millions of dollars every year to get out to communities, to vulnerable and poor communities in North Carolina who are working to improve their health. And so, yeah, I was like, this sounds cool. And I had a lot of influential people saying, oh my God, you don't understand this job is huge. You need to take it. You need to take it. So that began my my 20 year now journey in philanthropy. And in all of the roles across what ended up being three different foundations that I worked at before I I left to create my own fund and organization. I've just tried to always cause a little trouble, 
understand what was going on, speak the truth of power and, and get, get money to black and brown people. That has been my common thread through all of my jobs and careers is to get resources and money, information or whatever to our communities so that we can take care of ourselves in that way. So that's been my journey. And so now you are the CEO of Decolonized Wealth. What is Decolonized Wealth and why did you start it? In 2018, I uh, published a book, Decolonizing Wealth. And at the time, I was working as vice president of a foundation and had been in the field for a number of years and have experienced personally uh, a lot of harm and a lot of struggle within this industry that espouses to be about charity and you know the love of people and doing good. I mean, a lot of that does happen. But when you look closer at what's happening within the philanthropic industry, there's a lot of things that can cause you to feel frustrated I and mean, a lot of things that don't make sense. And for me, ultimately, I was sitting with this question of why is it so hard for this industry that has now $1.5 trillion in philanthropic capital? Why is it so hard to get money to our communities where I know uh, the critical role that we've played voluntarily and involuntarily in amassing the wealth that this country benefits from in this industry? Industry of philanthropy is a byproduct of that capitalistic system and that, that hoards and controls and distributes that capital. And so I wrote this book only not kind of for me, you know, in response to what I felt was a call from my ancestors. I've been on this healing journey for myself and had uh, taken some time to go back home. And I was talking to a lot of elders in my community, really trying to understand, is philanthropy a place where I can be most effective? I was getting burnt out with the struggle of trying to make the case all the time that our communities were worthy of money. And I, I had a really pivotal moment in North Carolina in a conversation with an elder by the name of Donna Chavis, who really spoke into me and helped me see that money was my medicine. And I talk about money being medicine a lot because this was a really transformative moment where I understood that money being this like icky thing thought of sometimes as the root of all evil is actually, uh, it's really not about the money. It's about us as human beings and how we have harmed and folks and taken away and extracted and enslaved and stolen, but we can actually have a change within us that helps us deploy resources in a, in a very different way. And so that revelation kind of like saved my life, honestly. And I felt like I had discovered something that the, everybody needed to hear. I also was really tired of just seeing all of my black and brown friends leave philanthropy after a long run in the sector. I've seen brilliant people come and go. And it's a space that just continued to cause harm, not only to people working inside the industry, but to communities. And I wanted to see a change in that. So when I put out Decolonizing Wealth, the book, I was really scared, to be honest. I was like, I'm never going to work again. I'm going to be blacklisted from the industry. I wasn't feeling brave. Like people were like, oh, you're so brave. I'm like, I was not. I was scared, honestly. And when the book came out, I could not have imagined the impact that it began to have. And I had a couple of book events 
scheduled to do. And then I was just going to go back and continue doing my job, honestly. And so what began to happen is just a growth of interest in this book. And I began doing talk after talk after talk. And in the year 2019, I spoke at over 125 events. And along that journey, I just begin to see like, wow, there's like this movement that is beginning to, to happen. And I think I've been told on numerous occasions that the book gave language to something that people have been feeling or to an experience that was shared with mine or to, you know, the seeds that a lot of people planted before me, the shoulders that I, I know I'm standing on those seats were beginning to come forth and at that at that time. And so this movement was benefiting from years of people pushing inside this industry to make change. And so this whole wave led to me actually launching the Decolonizing Wealth Project because there began to be like a demand for more, more, more. We need more support, more tools, more conversations. And so I just really, I didn't have a business plan when I started the organization. I really was just following the lead of, of what was needed at that time. A year later, uh, in, late in 2019, I launched Liberated Capital, our fund, because what began to happen is that um, many, many people with wealth in the U.S. wanted to meet with me, wanted to talk with me, and for whatever reasons, felt like they trusted me to, I uh, wanted to give me their resources to begin to redistribute. I, I began with like, oh, no, no, there's all these great funds you should give here, here, or here. It, what I realized is that folks were not um, were not giving. And if I'm in a room every single day with millionaires, I could not miss that opportunity to try to get that money for our communities. So Liberated Capital became a vehicle to invite folks to, to give money in a way that was in the spirit of repair and reparations. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do this fund, why don't I try to create a model that really embodies all the principles and the things that I, I say in the book to where donors will completely give up their power, have zero decision making influence over where these funds are allocated. And that was kind of a newish kind of idea at the time. And we just kept pushing it. And then it grew and took off. And we now have over 600 members on Braided Capital who give monthly without any type of say so and where those funds are directed. And so that's been a beautiful experiment. And so, yeah, I quit my day job <laughs> um, only about uh, only about two years ago. So I was kind of doing this. Um, shout out to the Shot Foundation who really supported my leadership and gave me the space. And my boss at the time said, you know, the world is calling for you and needs you, so go. And so at a certain point in time when the work really became larger and established, I resigned to build doubt this organization as it is now. So Edgar, you get me excited because so many things you talked about are like just all the things that I learned and used to hear all the time as an organizer um, before my time in philanthropy. And one of the things that you you just said is like you quit your day job and organizers always used to say the goal is to where you won't have a job. And I, I just love that. One of the other things that resonated with what you were saying was money is medicine. And I want you to talk more about that because when I hear organizers and racial justice advocates talking about money and medicine, it's usually about the fact that <laughs> the medicine costs too much money. <laughs> and you're coming at it from a totally different perspective that is informed by your Native ancestry and by your work in philanthropy. What does it mean to you? 
Yeah, so the concept of money as medicine really is rooted in the indigenous idea of what medicine is. So often we do think primarily of like doctors and nurses, hospitals, that type of medicine. But in the indigenous worldview, medicine is something that's very sacred. Anything can be medicine that restores balance, that inspires and makes you feel whole. And so for me, I often think like, what is my medicine? It's like, what what makes me feel good? And, you know, if I've had like a really stressful day, for example, I have a couple of super silly friends I might call up and just like kiki on the phone and they crack me up with their nonsense. And I feel like, you know, it just kind of brings like uh, light into my day, right? Brings joy into my day. Or, you know, maybe it's like I'm feeling like I want to go get a massage and just have like, you know, that meditative moment of relaxation. And so anything could be medicine if uh, that you allow your intuition um, to to guide you into a place of seeing that thing as medicine. So it's anything that we assign sacredness to or or spirituality to as as being something that um, helps us heal. And so, you know, when I think of money being medicine, even from some of my native friends, they're like, oh, you got to explain this one to me because there is this connotation around money that is uh, this dirty, negative thing, right? We used to misquote that scripture in the Bible that that money was money is the root of all evil, but it's it's not actually money. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And so when we think about putting money, loving money more than people or loving money more than the planet, therein is the evil. I mean, money ain't nothing but a thing, right? It's like a piece of paper. It's zeros and ones in the computer. It is a thing that we created, to, you know, as a form of exchange. And so it really is about us and our behaviors and how we use resources. So we can be inclined to hoard those resources, to extract and exploit people for those resources, or we can decide, no, we're going to actually liberate these resources in the spirit of healing. And so I say that money can be medicine if we put those resources and that money where the pain is the worst. And we know that the pain is the worst in communities of color. And so if we take the take ownership and acknowledge that the way that money has been accumulated in this country is full of trauma and has been very problematic, but we can flip that on its paradigm and say, well, let's put resources now, redistribute resources to the communities upon whose back, you know, these resources were built and made, then we are therefore like deploying resources in a way that is about, you know, in the form of medicine, it's helping to heal what has been done. We can never undo it, but we can try to repair and heal our history. That hits home for me, especially what you were saying about having something that animates your life and reinvigorates your spirit be sacred. And what what it brought up for me was actually last year when we had our conference facing race in Phoenix, I was in the place that you had been talking about where I'd been burned out and had some bad experience and I was just feeling kind of funky about just being around this. And I remember I went to facing race and I was surrounded by 4,000 people who were all there for racial justice. And there was white folk, there was black folk, there was native folk, there was Latinx folk, it was people from all walks of life, men, women, folks who identify as non-binary. And it changed my spirit. Like I, in the, right then I was like, you know what? 
I'm I'm changed. Like I'm healed right now. And I remember I spoke to that. And you are just coming off of actually an amazing conference in Atlanta where you actually made a really important announcement. So can you speak about a light, a line, a rise, which the subtext of is advancing the movement for repair? Can you tell us about what it was, why you had it, who some of the key stakeholders were, and also about your big announcement? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this national conference was probably one of the, this, the biggest highlights of my life. It was, it was super powerful. So uh, at Decolonizing Wealth Project, our fund, Liberated Capital, we have five different initiatives, but one of our signature initiatives that was pro- the first fund that we launched a few years back was uh, the Case for Reparations Fund. And so for um, over three years now, we've been supporting about 30 organizations, coalitions who are on the front lines fighting for reparations for Black people. And now that we have come out of the pandemic and we, you know, we were like filling the need to gather. And it was important that we created in this moment, this, this time to gather because since the murder of George Floyd, the reparations movement has really expanded. There's always been uh, folks who, are, who have been organizing around reparations for, for decades, lots of champions and heroes in the movement. But something about the moment a few years ago, it just really fueled this this idea and this demand for reparations in this country. And when we begin to throw resources at the movement, and let me say this, is, we were the first fund of its kind to support reparations in this country. No big foundation was supporting reparations. It was a grossly underfunded movement and and it still needs a lot of resources. But we have been able to move more than $4 million so far to support organizing. And then, you know, politically, what's been happening as a result of getting resources to this movement and because of their like diligence and passion for reparations, we've been seeing victories across this country at the local state, at the local level, at the state level, and, and then some movement around federal policy. So we're like, man, we got to get together. And so as we decided and started planning for this movement, we've also been organizing philanthropy. We have a uh, reparations funders table where funders are coming together to learn about the movement for reparations, sort of a donor collaborative sort of sorts. So we've been organizing in that space. We've been doing a lot of narrative work around reparations. And so we basically said, you know what, there's a window before us. We need to bring everybody together. So the folks who came were uh, movement partners partners and activists who are running coalitions at the local, state, and national level. But we also had more than 40 foundations who were in attendance. We had uh, media folks represented. We had folks from Congress, policymakers. We had researchers, academics there. So we had more than a little over 200 people who were just critical stakeholders in getting to this big victory. And so while we were there, I mean, it was just phenomenal. You know, so much unity, so much love, so much joy, but also uh, real honesty around about the work ahead and what's going, what it's going to take to win. And we were delighted to be able to showcase and support our partners and give them, you know, the stage and mic to talk about their work and what they're seeing happen. 
as a way to motivate, right? That reparations is no longer this niche issue. It has really become a, a very vast, large movement. We we get proposals for funding for reparations work from all 50 states, all 50 states are reparations work. There's reparations work happening. So at this conference, while we were there, we culminated that with a big announcement to this movement, letting them know that, you know, we've been committed to this movement and we ain't going nowhere. We are here for the long haul to continue to support and so we committed to move $20 million in funding to this movement over the next five years. And so we're super excited about that. It scares me a little bit, but it doesn't scare me, right? I'm like, there's probably one donor out there who can write a check for $20 million right now. We would reach our goal. So I'm trying to be brave and bold to see this as, as, the, as the floor of what is possible. Because truly, we've got to catch up. We've got to begin to make amends for the past. And I really believe that there is no path to racial healing in this country that does not include reparations for Black people. So that's interesting. I want to get into this because in the beginning of the pod... You talked about your background and, and you know, and obviously your um, native roots have inspired so much of your work. But several times you keep saying this is reparations for black folk. So talk about that. What's up? Because I'm black. I'm like, yeah, let's go. You know, <laughs> um, but I want to hear, like, what did that come from, given your history and your background? I'm so glad you asked that, because sometimes I forget that that might be like an obvious question me being native like what's this this joke up here talking about reparations and I, I do a lot of advocacy on social media and occasionally I get some you know some folks kind of saying some crazy things like who is this immigrant Mexican guy blah blah blah, blah you know so I, I actually started off the conference in my remarks to to them. I, I shared why I, as a Native American, am a, a passionate advocate for reparations for Black people in this country. For me, it is, you know, kind of going back to my history of my community being a tribe in the South. I mean, there's just always been a, I, I just grew up under that umbrella of solidarity and understanding that our liberation is so deeply connected. I've had people to say stuff to me like, why do you care? Why don't, why don't you make sure your community gets what it needs first? And then, you know, and I'm like, it's not about who gets what they need first. We all deserve what we need to to heal. And I think when you think about the history of the United States, the two original sins of this country that continue to be dark stains on, on the soul of our nation is the near genocide of Native folks and the taking of land and then the enslavement of Black people. All of that stuff was happening at the same time and has, you know, and are deeply connected and, and driven by the same reasons, right, of colonization and forced assimilation and extraction and building wealth and all. It's just so connected in my mind. So... As I was writing Decolonizing Wealth, where I really got politicized around specifically reparations for Black people, you know, I spent a lot of time just reading and talking to folks about restorative justice and reparations. And what I learned is the idea of restorative justice really actually comes from an, an indigenous sort of knowledge and wisdom, right? And so you can't really separate the two. And I, I'm very clear that what Native people want and need to heal is very different from what Black people want to need and heal. And that the movements for these things should be definitely led by people from those communities. But I also see the beauty and the opportunity and solidarity 
and how white supremacy often wins because it tries to pit our communities against each other. And so, you know, I had a call with some reparations movement leaders yesterday. And this this guy actually said to me, like, Edgar, you are a part of this movement because I was trying to be really respectful and be like, I'm just trying to support, you know, I know sometimes my name gets thrown out there. I'm not trying to be the face of the, the movement for black people by any means. I just deeply know that uh, that victory is deeply connected to what my people want and need. And I just want that for black people. I also, you know, so I, w- I, w- I felt like I felt welcomed by the reparations movement to, the, you know, to acknowledge that I am a part of the movement and what I'm able to do in my role is impactful. I also acknowledge that I have like skin privilege, you know, being native is sometimes is for whatever reasons, like more palatable for people because of anti-black racism. And so sometimes I get invited into rooms to talk about race because they're like, oh, this is like a native person. It's going to be like a certain thing. And it's only minutes before I start talking about anti-black racism <laughs> because it's, it's like I'm not going to not always bring that up and understand that, you know, black people are the most impacted by this system in so many ways. Although, you know, I could go on all day long about how my community is suffering and, uh, but I'm not going to do the oppression Olympics and kind of contribute to that division there. So I really appreciate that really smart organizers in the movement see me as an ally and know that I, what I'm able to do in terms of organizing philanthropy to resources movement is something that is really powerful and, and a plus to the movement. But it's a good question. I'm glad you asked because I, um, I definitely don't want to uh, put a narrative out there that I am, you know, on the forefront of this, this movement for black people because I don't think that is appropriate. But I think that we all should be doing what we can to support reparations for black people in this country. Well, it gets us right to another question that's been pretty central to the reparations discussion over the years and the political outcomes is actually the questions of how do we define who's black? And I know that's not, I'm not at all expecting you to answer that, but given all the learning that you've done in your building with community and community organizing and organizers, how are you thinking about that? Because one of the questions that has continually come up has been, and this is from proponents, well, if we win, let's say just to make it simple, and it's not simple, and let's say it were just a monetary sum. There have been all these debates about, well, who should get that money, right? How do we trace that, you know, given the legacies of family separation, given the various ways in which the transcontinental slave trade had different entry points, given the fact that also there was genocide against Native American folks, and and that is also a historical harm that needs um, repair. How are you thinking about these things or what have you learned? I've learned a lot about it recently, especially as it pertains to reparations and the black community. And I do think the discussions and debate is is very similar to debates that happen in the native community. I mean, we definitely have, you know, blood quantum debates and are you native enough, those types of things and tribal disenrollment because of scarcity mindset. So I think anytime we get to a place where we're talking about money and resources because our communities have been so 
impoverished and often have trauma uh, from the lack of having resources, it's very easily to begin to like look around and say and among ourselves to say who's worthy or not worthy or, you know, because the resources are, are finite. So it is a it is a wedge issue within the movement for reparations around who they should be for. You know, so I, I often try not to speak to it as a person who is not black because it, there's so much debate around it. But what I can say is that I'm in favor of everybody getting it. And I'm in favor of descendants of slaves getting reparations is obviously a very clear way to like figure out that and, and, and even like research around what that number is and, and ways to figure out how to make those allocations. And I also support reparations for all black people who have experienced through systemic and historical racism in this country disenfranchisement that I think should be accounted for. And so that's kind of, you know, I'm, I'm like money for everybody is kind of how I go about it. But it is uh, within it, it's a hot, hot topic of debate right now. Um, and uh, we uh, the only position that we have taken at DWP in terms of our funding so far is that we will not support a group that is bashing other groups for the sake of their own agenda. Right. And so there are, you know, a couple advocates out there who publicly kind of go after other groups of colored immigrants saying, you know, not wanting anybody to get anything until they get theirs. We don't think that's the right spirit. We really want to um, promote solidarity and make space for those debates that need to happen among the movement and let movement kind of decide, you know, where things need to go. But in general, I think what's great is because of the funding, because of the convening opportunities that have been happening, these debates are, are finally are happening. And with like throughout history in the civil rights movement, there have always been debates that need to happen. And that's what they call it, the struggle. Right. And so I'm glad that folks were able to get together to kind of like fight it out. And I do believe that we'll find a path forward because, you know, these folks are super smart and there's a lot of research and support happening. And we'll get to some some resolutions around that. So I want to get back to the work in terms of what people are doing on the ground. And I know that reparations has sort of reemerged in the general population's um, uh, imagination and political discourse because there have been bills introduced, there have been task forces established, and, and it's actually become a big focal point for opposition. But a lot of what isn't reported on is the wins. And so I was wondering if you could speak to a couple of examples of what you think are some of the wins and also how funding can amplify those things. And one thing in particular I wanted you to speak to is I thought it was really interesting that your funding is actually focused on smaller nonprofits. So within this, I'm hoping you could like share a little bit about why you picked that approach. The vast majority of the groups we're funding probably are smaller. If we think about small in terms of budget size, there are a couple of larger organizations in there. And I think we're seeing the sort of the pool of candidates or pool of people who are working on reparations campaigns kind of expand across all different sizes because it is becoming more of an issue that even larger racial justice organizations are interested in. 
What's been the most exciting about this work, though, is that we have seen wins. Um, and I, I believe that seeing wins at the local level, at the state level, are really stepping stones to socializing and normalizing that reparations is possible to help build the case for the big federal victory. A couple of wins that come to mind for me, you know, and, and this also we shed, shed light to kind of how campaigns around reparations can look different. There's a group called Where's My Land that was fighting for uh, justice for Bruce, Bruce's Beach. And uh, this is a beach outside of L.A., Manhattan Beach area, where land had been owned by black families, beachfront property. And through sort of uh, legislation, this land was taken. And those families were never uh, awarded the, the type of compensation that they deserve for having their land taken. And so I remember like, wow, we, we gave a grant to this group who was campaigning to get their land back. And they made this video where they were just crying and saying like, oh my God, they were so excited about the support. It was the first time they had ever been able to pay their staff. And, you know, this movement is, is led by a lot of volunteers and folks who will do it with or without philanthropic support because they're so passionate. And so it was very quick that we saw that victory of Bruce's Beach that the county came in and voted and the land was actually restored to the ownership. And then those families sold the land um, and uh, took, took, the, took the money. And so that was just, an, you know, just a very empowering kind of thing to witness. What we've seen across many localities and even in California at the state level is the establishment of these commissions to look at reparations. And at the federal level, that is what the current legislation that's that's pending is about. It's simply to establish a federal commission to study reparations, right? And the fact that anyone would oppose that idea that we need to like take a serious look at it and consider it, I think is just ridiculous. But we've seen from places like Asheville, North Carolina, to, to San Jose, to the state of California, who has had the largest task force, who just came out with a, a really impactful report. We're seeing that a commission seems to be like the blueprint to get the conversations started to get the lawmakers around the table to understand the issue, to hear input from the community, and to come out with real recommendations for what reparations can look like in these communities. And so we definitely have seen places from Evanston, Illinois, obviously, that have begun to pay reparations um, locally, um, but we definitely have seen many, many places now advocating to have these task force and these commissions. And that is happening so fast and quickly that we can barely keep up. We actually just created this mapping tool that's going to be launched in the fall that will help to track where reparations work and policy is happening across the country because it is really moving quickly. And stakeholders like funders and researchers are always saying, to, you know, wanting asking us, where's this work happening? And so we're trying to create a way to like show folks where they can plug in and who they can support through a mapping um, um, system. And a big part that's driving that is that this movement is expanding. I'm just seeing headlines. I think I know like what's going on in the movement. I'm like, oh, wait, Rhode Island is doing something I didn't even know, you know, so it is expanding greatly and we're seeing small victories left and right that I really think are going to accumulate to a national victory. And the last thing I just want to add about that, there is a movement of in a culture of repair that is just growing tremendously, not just sort of in these reparation kind of campaigns that are like targeting governments, but we're seeing 
in the corporate sector, corporate folks beginning to acknowledge their harm and wanting to pay reparations of sorts. We've worked with some companies like Lush Cosmetics. We're seeing in university systems, you know, a whole movement happening there of acknowledging uh, harm and wanting to repair those harms, like California offering free tuition for Native American students as a result of some of that work. So there is a sweeping kind of movement around repair and redress in this country that I think is really, really beautiful. As you were talking about beauty and about what it takes to do this work and sharing the stories I was wondering about emotional impact and I was hoping you could share if you have a moment that really stood out on your journey where you heard a story and maybe you wanted to cry or maybe you wanted to hug somebody or maybe you wanted to like go tear something down. Like what is the, you know, do you have a a moment you can remember where it's like, it wasn't the on the spreadsheet, you know, it wasn't the sort of, oh, here's what I'm going to say today on. It was like, I got to do this. I got to keep going or I, I or I need a minute to, to take for myself, whatever it may be. Give us the thing that sits in your heart. Yeah, I appreciate that so much because a lot of folks just think when you hear about reparations or truth and healing for Native folks that we're talking about things that happened so long ago. And some of this, some of this stuff is really recent. And what's top of mind with your question is uh, one of our partners is called Justice for Greenwood that, that works out of Tulsa. And in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there are still a few remaining survivors from the Tulsa massacre, right? Where, you know, this incredible atrocity of just completely bombing um, an entire black uh, community that was building wealth. Even when black people have played by the rules and participated in capitalism, the wealth has still been taken away. So uh, at our conference, we had um, actually made some videos where we had interviewed some of the folks who were directly impacted by the Tulsa massacre. And we heard from the executive director of Justice for Greenwood, who is currently representing the, the two to three survivors that are left. One of them just put out a book and is like the oldest author recently published or whatever. So to see people who can still stand and speak to what happened, how an entire community was obliterated, it, it's just so compelling. Like one, the beautiful resiliency and the way we just keep coming back as black and brown people, but also just how deeply horrific it, white supremacy still continues to operate and create time and time again, these barriers to our communities who are just trying to get ahead. And so it's a really compelling case for reparations when you begin to hear these stories of survivors, both, you know, I, I can go on and on about the indigenous community as well, with the boarding schools that just closed down in like the late 70s in the U.S. and the ongoing traumas from that. So, but yeah, check out Justice for Greenwood. We're going to be posting those videos on the Decolonizing Wealth YouTube channel as well for folks to see, but some amazing work happening there. And it, it's it's a no-brainer when you when you see and hear those types of stories that reparations is is necessary to to address the, these legacies of harm. 
When you said that, it made me think of one of my favorite shows, which is uh, the HBO show The Watchmen or Watchmen. It's centered around basically an alternate history where in which basically the country did embrace uh, multiracial democracy in a way that was much more robust. And they go to, I don't remember the exact name, but it's basically like the Reparations Museum. And like there's just all this commemoration of Tulsa and it has this, you know, retelling of the, the Tulsa massacre. And if anyone's into kind of the, you know, sci-fi world, it's a good, it's a good way to kind of check into this. So as we wind down. You got so many things going on, Edgar. Tell us what's next. You've got this $20 million fund that's going to be deployed. The movement is in full swing. What's next for you? What do you want people to know? And where can people find you? Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, we are continuing to just double down our commitment to move money to Black and Native folks in the U.S. through all of our initiatives, which range from truth and healing to reparations to farmer justice to climate and conservation and land back efforts. All of these things are happening in the spirit of redress and healing and uh, trying to make amends for the, the wealth gap that exists because of historical and systemic racism. Folks can learn all about our work at decolonizingwealth.com. We're on all the socials, um, both me and DWP, so you can check us out there. We are getting ready to launch a, a major campaign uh, to help shift the narrative around reparations in this country. What's really interesting from some research we've done is that a lot of white people are actually in favor of reparations if it is framed in the right way. And so we're going to try to shift that narrative that it's not about taking from to give to, but it's about pushing these institutions and governments to make amends for their harm. And there is healing for all of us in the opportunity to pay reparations uh, to Black people in this country. So that's going to be big for us. We're also just increasingly expanding global. I'm down in Mexico right now for some events we've been having here. We're working in Brazil. We're doing a lot in the UK. So this is a global movement in the same way that white supremacy is operationalizing and has been globally. Um, we are thinking about how we can decolonize wealth all around the globe. And so uh, we're excited to be a community and partnership with you all. And uh, yeah, check us out online and on socials. All right, Edgar, I know we said we're going, but every time we're about to go, you say something that's got my mind going. So tell me about the global part, because that is such a part of if We're talking about slavery, right? We're talking about a transatlantic slave trade that brought folks from Africa to Brazil to the UK, to all these places, which actually shaped the political development of all of those countries and is now also reshaping this country, even in modern times, as immigration from some of those countries continues to happen and be, you know, um, an issue and, and a thing that is the bedrock for a lot of oppression and a lot of separation of communities. So talk about that, because I don't know that a lot of people know of decolonize in its global form. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the impact that we've been able to have on U.S. philanthropy, which is, is really tremendous, has, you know, folks have taken note because in other countries where philanthropy is a newer industry or maybe an industry that's been around, they're always kind of watching what we've done in the U.S. And um, so as a result of that, I've been invited to speak in a number of conferences, philanthropic conferences in different places around the world, from Australia to Brazil to Canada. 
And, you know, we had the good fortune to bring on a director of global programs who had worked in London in the philanthropic sector. And that's where we begin to focus because I feel like the UK is kind of like ground zero for a lot of this nonsense, right? And and so uh, there in the UK, it was just really beautiful timing where we begin to organize and have events to meet with funders to talk about these ideas. You know, there's a lot, of, lot more discomfort there to talk about colonial wealth and the wealth of the crown, right? Because of all the respect for the royalty and monarchy there. But, you know, the timing is everything with the passing of the queen and the increasing demands for reparations that were coming up from Jamaica and other places. And, you know, sort of a growing disdain for what the the historical, sort of what the monarchy has represented there through the British Empire. So that has fueled our work and our interests. And there, there are some great philanthropists there and even like corporations like the Guardian newspaper who recently came out with an amazing story and taking account for how their business benefited from the transatlantic slave trade. And so this is a global movement where people are rising up and saying, hey, you know, the wealth that is around the world, it all kind of comes back to the same place a lot of time from from the enslavement of black people. And so uh, that demand for, for reparations is a global demand that we are seeing increasingly. And so we're moving fast and fiercely to organize around philanthropy, through our reparative philanthropy framework, and then to also try to move resources to these groups who are on the front lines demanding reparations. So it's an amazing thing to to witness, and we're excited to be, you know, play a small role in it. So now I get why the conference has such good music. Yes. (laughs) Edgar, thank you so much for joining Momentum. We really appreciate your time. We want to send you well wishes, send you power on your journey, and Hope you're doing okay. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Momentum, of Race Forward podcast. And once again, big thank you to Edgar Villanueva and Decolonizing Wealth for making this episode possible. To listen to more of Momentum, a Race Forward podcast, check us out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And remember that you can support Race Forward's work by texting RFPOD to 44321. Visit Race Forward on social media at Race Forward on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we'll see you soon for the next episode of Momentum, a Race Forward podcast.